Welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. It's me, your host, Adam Rosted. Hey, sorry, this summer has been so busy, we've kind of neglected getting the podcasts out. I apologize. We're working on getting them together and putting them online for you guys. Uh, in fact, this one is uh, from a number of month- months ago. The theme is Rebel, so there's a bunch of uh, great stories about rebellion and things like that. Hey, our next story slam is Saturday, September 17th at the Wilmar Center, and the theme is Scars. So be sure to come out and hear and tell your stories about how you've been scarred, whether physically or emotionally. Anyway, that's all I've got, so stick around to hear some great rebellion stories. So those of you who have been here before, fuck you, Madison. That's the way I start my shows. Now I do that because that way if I bomb, you can just go, I told you he was an asshole. <laughs> so first of all, before I don't start timing me yet, because I'm not ready yet, I want, to, I want us all to thank Adam and Ashley for what they put on here. Isn't this great? Come on, guys. This really is great. And all of you people that come and watch this. It's amazing. This is amazing. There's no cell phones. Everybody's... God wants to hear a story. So, time in. <laughs> they called me stupid. They said, you're stupid. That's what the kids used to tell me in high school. You're never going to amount to anything. Get a haircut. Get a job. Be somebody. That's what my parents used to tell me when I was young, when I was in high school. I hated school, partly because of that. They always used to tell me how stupid I was. Well, maybe after you hear the story, maybe it wasn't so stupid. So this is a story. When, you, when I heard about the Columbine kids, you know, people would say, how could they do that? Well, guess what? I got it. I understood those kids. They probably called them stupid so many times that they couldn't take it anymore. And although they chose a bad choice to deal with it, I didn't deal with it that way. My choice was more like... Suicide by parent I was going to try. I thought, you know, if you can get your parents to kill you, then you really give it to your parents who you happen to hate when you're a teenager, and you get taken out of the world all in the same shot. So this is a story about that attempt to do that. It's, my, it's the summer between sophomore and junior year of high school. It's the year that I learned about sex, drugs, and rock and roll became relevant in my life. So that started to become more important than high school. Get to the first day of high school of my junior year. My friends have some weed. Ah, looks like smoking weed would be more fun than going to school the first day. It won't be a big deal. It'll be easy to blow off and get away with. So off we go to smoke weed. Well, then the rest of the day, I'm not going to go to school. The hell with that. So I go off and have fun. Well, the next day of school, I go to school. Ah, that seemed like pretty much fun, so let's do that again. The hell with school. So, as you can imagine, this kind of roll started rolling, and pretty soon a week goes by, haven't been in school yet, another week goes by, haven't been in school yet, and I'm thinking, I wonder how long I can get away with this. (laughs) My parents are dropping me off at school every morning. Every morning, my dad gives me a ride to school, in the back door, out the front, gone, go smoke some weed or hang out with my friends or whatever I want to do. So... It, this, took some, this took some ingenuity. I started flying by the seat of my pants to see how long I can get away with this. So it, 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 it took my sister's help. She had to help me intercept some letters. I had a stay-at-home mom, so 
the, the mailman came. So my sister actually helped me out with this and intercepted some letters from the school saying I wasn't there. So my dad keeps giving me a ride to school every day. In the front door, out the back. No problem. I got this covered. And I'm going along pretty good. This is getting all right. I'm not going to school. And in those days, for those of you, many of you aren't going to remember this, but our report cards used to be just cards that your teacher gave you. And you took them home and gave them to your parents. There was no computers. They didn't send them. They didn't do any of that. You went to class. She gave you your card. You had your grade and the little notes on it. Tell your parents what an asshole you were. And you took them home. So I get the bright idea. A friend of mine that got into the office and stole me some cards. So I start making out my own report cards. The first quarter, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. Okay. It worked. It worked. The first quarter. I didn't give myself good grades now. I was smart enough. I got some D's. I didn't give myself an F, but I had some D's and a few C's. No A's. No friggin' way was I going to give myself an F. I wanted to, but I didn't. So we get through the first quarter, it worked. Okay. So then the drug use was getting kind of heavy, so I had to get a job. So I went and got a job. So then it, it, my dad, every day, dropped me off at school, uh, you know, and I'd go off to work. So Christmas comes, fill out the report cards again, boom, done. This is getting sweet. I am pulling this off. It's a half a year, and I have not went to school one day, and nobody knows except my friends. And they're going like, how are you doing? I'm going, I don't know, but I'm just doing it. And I really didn't know what I was doing. So one more quarter. I get to the third quarter. I pull it off. And I'm just thinking, this is, this is it. I got this. I want to make it through the whole year. Never go to a day of school and nobody knows. <laughs> Easter break comes. My parents are in a tavern in town. Now, most teachers in those days drank a lot. And they probably still do. I don't know. <laughs> So, my parents happen to be in the tavern where all the teachers go. Who do they run into? My old guidance counselor. My sister went to this same school and just graduated the year before. They run into my old guidance counselor, and he was like, Mr. and Mrs. Osnowski, it's great to see you, you know. Did you guys move or what? And they were like, what? And they were, did you move? And they were like, no, why? And they go, well, is Marty going to a different school or what? And they were like, What? <laughs> And they go, well, he goes, well, did, did, it, I haven't seen Marty in school. And they're like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, no, I haven't seen him all year. He's, you know, we sent you some letters. And they were like, what? So he's, it, now my parents are pretty smart. They've got this figured out now. And so they're going to wait to get me on this. So the, the, the guidance counselor, he goes back to school and checks the records this guy hasn't been there all year. He calls my parents up on Monday and tells them he hasn't been here the entire year. And they're like, and you can imagine, I mean, doing that to your parents was... So I get home on that Monday. Mom, how was school? Oh, great. <laughs> Believe me, you talk about shit hitting the fan, folks. I was busted right then and there bad. But the way I look at it, they called me stupid. But you know what? To me, that whole thing was kind of genius. I mean, who in the hell can get away with going to school, not going to school for three quarters of the year, not get busted? Nobody knew. And they said I was stupid. And that's my story. I was reminded that my senior year of high school, I didn't go. <laughs> 
senior year of high school, again, keep in mind, my grandfather started the school I went to. So my senior year of high school, I just was like, ah. I got senioritis at fourth grade. <laughs> my mom was the choir teacher when I was in fourth grade. And she was really close to all the seniors. And they would come over to the house. And I remember watching the, uh, the Seinfeld finale with the entire senior class from, from my school when I was in fourth <clears throat> fourth grade and uh and they would all talk about having senioritis and i'd be like what's that and they'd say well it's when you're really sick of school and you don't want to be in it anymore and i was like yeah that is me <laughs> and so senior year i was like dying of senioritis and i would tell my mom in the morning i'm like i just i don't really want to go she'd be like i'll call you in sick and i forget how many days you're allowed to miss of school in a semester but I, way more than that, I have, I have sat down to calculate it. I missed about half of my senior year of high, of high school because I just was like, I'm not going. When I was there, I, <laughs> my Christian school was uh, across the parking lot from a church. And um, I was interning with the, the youth pastor there because there was a time in my life where I wanted to be a youth pastor. And that time was during my senior year of high school. So instead of going to study hall, I'd go over to his office and laminate things. And then we would go to Culver's for lunch. <laughs> and uh, that was for my uh, first semester of senior year. And then after my internship was over... I would go down to the office. I, I would send him a text in my third hour class and say, hey, I've got a study hall next hour, and then it's lunch. Do you want to just hang out and go to Culver's? And I'd do that maybe twice a week, or we wouldn't always go to Culver's. We're not gross. Uh, <laughs> we did always go to Culver's. We're pretty gross. <laughs> uh, and I'd text him and say, hey, uh, do you want to go get lunch? And he'd say, yeah. So then I'd go down to the office where his wife was the person in the office, and I'd say, hey, Sarah, I'm really going through it. And I just, can I, I got to go over and talk to Derek at the church. <laughs> and I'm sure this poor woman thought that I was just like had a terrible home life and was like depressed as shit and needed the counsel of her husband. She was like, yeah, go ahead. And so second semester senior year, when I was at school, I was often off campus eating lunch and so yeah, I skipped a lot of school. It was, it was good times. Anyway, our next storyteller is Zachary Shea, so please give it up for him. Okay, so I almost didn't tell a story this week when I saw the theme because I am the farthest thing from a rebel you will see tonight. I am what my uh, like the bullies when I was in middle school, and then friends and parents would call a dork, <laughs> like a big one, like an alone in my apartment wearing a bow tie, wrapped in my Super Mario blanket, watching Kiki's Delivery Service and eating Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> dork, and I'm okay with that. I like it, but I have. Whenever I break the rules, I get caught right away. It's like everyone responsible for catching me in the act has a little GPS in their head. Usually my mom, but it varies. And 
I always try to follow the rules. Because of that, I actually never had a sip of alcohol until I was 21. I'm sure most people have that moment where, like, one of the cool kids in high school, when you're, like, a freshman or sophomore or whatever age it actually happens, hands you your first drink, and you're like, I get to do this now. For me, it was like that, except it was someone talked about having alcohol that weekend and I had to play it cool like that was a thing we both did like yeah all the time and the worst part of this story is is that I was a senior and the girl telling the story was a freshman so that was me going into my summer senior year I never had alcohol I'd never kissed a girl I'd never even like The closest I'd gotten is a girl told me she thought I was cute before she hung out with me. So, no, it was good. That that was awesome. She thought I was cute. Come on. So I was really shocked and stunned when I go into that summer and I'm working at this camp and a girl is like, Zach, I think you're attractive. And I'm like, are you sure you're... Is there someone behind me? I, I wasn't, I was confused and I felt like I was doing something wrong. Like I was already like breaking some sort of rule. For starters, she was actually my teacher's daughter um, in high school. The woman who wrote me the recommendation letter that got me into my, the college I went to. And also, and like, for me, again, anytime I got near breaking a rule, I panicked. She was 17 and I was 18. So I was already like running in with the law in my head. Like I, I was the worst kind of pervert. So finally we're like doing this gross, like passive aggressive flirting for like a week and we're at a point where we both, I'm like, okay, she's definitely sure. And I'm definitely sure she likes me. And she goes, Zach, I want to go a bit further with you. Get ready and be prepared tomorrow night. And I was like, why prepare? Is there a quiz? How does sex work? <laughs> I'm totally confused about what's, and I, I figure it out. I'm supposed to get a condom. I get, I got that far. Um, but this is something I've never done before. Um, and I don't know if other people felt this way, but when I walked into that pharmacy, I was like, heart attack. Like, I'm going to walk up to the counter with these condoms and be like, could I buy these, please? And the woman at the counter is going to be like, we got a pervert <laughs> wanting to have sex. So I'm freaking out. This is live radio. If you ordered a pizza from Roman Candle, they are waiting for you to sign your receipts. You're not answering your cell phone, so this is where I get to embarrass you. Anyway, sorry, condoms. We now return you to our regular scheduled program. So I'm at the store. I need to buy condoms, but I don't want to buy the condoms. So I slip them in my bag. 
Now, in my head, I think I am George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, like, this is not going to end well. In reality, I'm more like... Like Frank Sinatra from the original Ocean's Eleven, which for those of you who get that reference, he doesn't so much pull off a big heist as sidle into a safe. It's not that impressive in the original. So I have the condoms in my bag, and I'm freaking out, and I just, I leave the woman at the counter, says bye, because she's supposed to, but in my head she knows. She has x-ray, I guess it's Superman, at the, at the counter, and I'm, I, I just walk away. Now, I worked at a camp on an island, so I have to entertain myself for two hours before I can get back on the boat, which means I spend two hours slowly panicking and panicking and panicking, and I'm going to get caught, and I'm going to go to jail, and they're going to find out she's 17, and I'm going to get, like, a life sentence. I am worried. So I go back to the CVS, and I buy enough pens to equal the amount of the condoms, and I leave them there by accident. And I get on the boat. And that night, I'm with her, And she's like, did you prepare? And I'm like, yes. And I take my stolen contraband and I put it on my penis. Let's not be peachy. It's, 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 they're they're condoms. And I fake it. I stole condoms so that I could fake an orgasm. But she thought I was cute. That's pretty good, right? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Our our next storyteller uh, told a story last month about uh, getting pulled over by the police in Nebraska. Nebraska. And uh, the cop did something... He, he did actually two things that I have never heard of a cop doing. One, he said to our next storyteller, well, if you're not paying, you're, you're coming to jail, and so get in your car and follow me into town, <laughs> which is just insane. And what's weird is that you had people in your car that could have driven your... Like, he could have arrested you, and, and then secondly, when they got into town, the police officer hit a little girl with his car... And then he was like, you're not arrested anymore. Just get out of here. (laughs) So please put your hands together for Bradley Glassell. I just wanted to point out that during... uh, Don't start the timer. I I think you can do that, right? He had the precedent. I just want to point out when I told that story, that's a dramatic moment where the cop hits the girl and one person laughed. So this is kind of a continuation of that trip. So to recap a little bit, I'm 19 years old, and I decide that really a great vacation is to buy a month-long Greyhound Pass and travel around the United States. And last time I asked, did anybody else ever do this? No. Good move. Good move. So uh, it's basically a poor man's cruise, except it's non-inclusive. 
So, uh, again, I had gone on this trip around the United States for about a month, and I was at the end of the trip. And so my last stop was going to be at the Grand Canyon. So I went to the Grand Canyon, and basically my plan was I had run out of money. And so I was going to go to the Grand Canyon, and then I was going to hop on the bus back to L.A., last stop, so I could go straight there. I didn't have to have any money and get back to Los Angeles where I lived. So I go to the Grand Canyon, and uh, has anybody ever been into the Grand Canyon? Great. Did you ever hike down into the Grand Canyon? Yes, exactly. The hike down is great. The hike back up is a bitch. So basically, you're going down about 2,000 feet, and then you have to walk back up continually up like a stairs the entire way. So go down there, hike down, and I'm on my way up, back up, and walking, and there's a guy walking along, and I start kind of walking with him, and he's in a big, big guy, and he's struggling a little bit. So we start walking together, we start talking and all this, and I start talking to him. His name's Kerry, and he is from Australia, and he is on a much better vacation than me. He is traveling around the world on an airline trip. So back at that time, there was an airline called Laker Airlines, and he bought a round-the-world trip on that. So I'll get back to Laker Airlines a little bit longer. So this is my rebel, basically, Carrie. So we're going through, we're walking, we're getting along, we're talking and all this. And I tell him my story. I said, you know, I'm going to get back up to the top of the Grand Canyon. I'm going to jump on the next Greyhound back to L.A. because I'm out of money. He goes, hey, hey, I got a plan. Says, how about this? He said, I'll buy dinner for you and I'll let you stay in my hotel room. You know, we'll have some fun and all this. In a couple weeks, I'm going to be in L.A., and I'll come and stay at your place. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good deal. So we go, and he gets me dinner. We go stay, you know, that. And I take off the next morning, and I head back to L.A. Well, about three weeks later, I get a call from Kerry. He says, hey, I'm going to be in L.A. Sounds good. So he comes over, gets over to my house, and that. Now, back up to Laker Airlines. Laker Airlines only flew DC-10 jets. About... Five days before Carrie arrives at my house in L.A., there's a horrific plane crash in Chicago. 271 people die. Did you want to laugh? (laughs) Okay, no. (laughs) So, So, horrible plane crash. The FAA grounds all DC-10s. Laker Airlines only fly DC-10s. So all of a sudden, Kerry is stuck. His last stop was L.A. He was going to fly back to Australia. Okay, So now he is stuck at my apartment. So the way that uh, Kerry, being the rebellious person he was, decided to handle this was to sit on the couch all day long, watch TV, and drink enormous amounts of beer. So I'd come home every night from work, and there would be this big, drunk Australian guy on my couch. Lots of fun. So, But he was a nice guy, so I couldn't kick him out. He was a good guy. So all the way along, as this goes on, and it gets a little bit tiring, you can imagine eight months he was on my couch. Eight months he's on my couch. So every once in a while, I'm getting a little irritated, and he'd say, I'll tell you what, mate, and, and this is my Australian accent, I'll tell you what, mate, so it's really bad. So he says, when I get back to Australia, I'm going to send you kangaroo skins. 
Who here has it on their bucket list of having a kangaroo skin? <laughs> Wasn't on mine. Yours? Okay, well, I'll help you out. So, yeah, I'm like, kangaroo skin? What do I want a kangaroo skin for? So, anyways, eventually Carrie figures out a way to get back to Australia. And about a year later, I get a letter from him. And now there is a moratorium by the Australian government on sending out kangaroo skins. So, of course, I want a kangaroo skin now because I can't have one. So, so basically, I never got a kangaroo skin. And uh, so the moral of the story is to be a rebel, lay on a couch for eight weeks, I mean eight months, and just drink a lot of beer. Thank you. <laughs> Bradley decided to make me look like an asshole who, <laughs> who laughs at people's deaths. Now, to be fair, the story he told last month built up to the little girl being hit by a car, and it just, it's not funny that she got hit by a car, it just was funny in the context of the story that that thing happened. Like, not to her, I'm not making myself look anybody, any better, so... Moving on, what was the, uh, what was, do you remember the flight number that crashed? Was it 232? Flight 232? None of the rest of you care about this. I had a friend who, who survived a, a devastating plane crash in Chicago back then. So, oh, nobody. So it wasn't that one. <laughs> nobody survived. <laughs> Anyway, please put your hands together for our next storyteller, Maria De La O. Thank you, folks. So tonight I will tell you a story about a time that I rebelled against the person that I thought I knew best. So uh, the first time that I ever did Story Slam was back in January. Humiliation. Whoever was there heard my story. Um, a few of you guys were. Thank you. And um, I talked about getting my heart broken and feeling humiliated in public by a guy who I had honestly believed was the one. And there was also another guy there, a bandmate of uh, said guys, who I referred to as Bastard Drummer. And the story has to do with Bastard Drummer. Bastard Drummer's name was Jake. So... <laughs> About a year ago, uh, I believe it was actually St. Patty's Day, or it had been, um, I couldn't really sleep, so I watched Boondock Saints, and then I couldn't sleep some more, because after you watch a shoot 'em up film with, like, two hot Irish guys killing, you know, criminals, like, you're not just going to go to sleep, you got to do something. Couldn't think of what to do, so, you know, like most millennials, I flip open my laptop. And this was a really lonely time in my life, so I regret to inform all of you that I had joined a dating website, the worst one of them all, but thank God it has an accurate nickname, Plenty of Fish. And I have to say, this is such an apt nickname, because it is Plenty of Fish, guys. It's not people. Don't go on there if you can help it, for the love of God. But it's like two in the morning, and I've just watched Boondock Saints, and I'm sitting there, like, biding my time on Plenty of Fish. And looking on, like, who's online now? Like, what, you know, loser guys can I try to date now? And um, <laughs> all of a sudden, I, like, do a double take. I'm like, wait a minute. I see... I see Jake, like this was Bastard Drummer. I never really knew this guy. So, you know, I... I had strong feelings for, uh, you know, his friend, the singer in this three-piece garage punk band in Madison. Um, and I knew him, but I didn't really know the drummer. I talked to him, like, one time. And I should also add that of the three guys in the band, like, 
like my brother is a metalhead, okay, and my brother was in bands for years. So as having his experience, he always told me, and I don't know if this is true for anyone else in bands, but he always said that with bands, especially like with rock bands, there's always that one member that either the members of the band itself or other people speculate is a serial killer. Like, my brother always said that. For him, it was um, their rhythm guitarist. So for this band, uh, I think it was definitely most likely candidate would have been this drummer, this Jake guy. Because, like, the other two guys, they kind of looked the part. They had, never mind the fact that they they were Catholic schoolboys with, like, rich, happy, together parents, but they kind of had the shaggy hair and, like, the goodwill clothes, the ripped jeans, and the dirty converse. But, like, Jake, this drummer guy, he was a lot more conservative, clean-cut, the tight-ass polo shirts and, like, the khaki pants, belted and the short hair, whatever. But still, I just... He always looked angry to me. And I mentioned in my one of my other stories, like... Seeing him, he, I, he was always glaring at me. I just thought this guy hated me, like just staring daggers at me. But apparently his idea of eye sex is like angry eye sex because that come hither look, like I mentioned, is the same as his I want to murder you with an axe look. So if anybody in this band was most likely to be the secret Pat Bateman, it was definitely this guy. But I see him on there. I'm like, what the hell is he doing on this site? So... I don't do anything, and then two days later, I get that ridiculous email from them. He's checking you out. He wants to meet you, and then soon enough, I get a message from him. So we start talking, and as I've been rejected by his uh, bandmate, I think, what's a good way to get back at him? I'm going to hook up with his best friend. Okay. So we start talking. Jake eventually asks for my phone number, and he, just the second he gets my phone number, everything changes. He starts saying, I won't repeat some of the filthiest things that I've ever heard. And I'm no prude, but I mean, I I don't even want to say what this guy was saying to me, saying how he'd always seen me at Mickey's. He's not mentioning his friend. He's not mentioning, oh, I know you used to date my friend. That's the elephant in the room that neither of us is addressing. But he's just saying these filthy things to me. And I'm starting to think, yeah, this is going to be great revenge on my ex. Like, I'm really going to put him through the roof here. So finally, we keep, you know, starting to talk about meeting up. And first off, red flag number one, I have to admit begrudgingly, he would only text me after like, I want to say 10 p.m. usually. And I would be getting those 2 a.m. texts, those 2 a.m. please come over. Red flag number one, the guy or whoever does not text you until the wee hours. Uh, And second of all, red flag number two, I start to notice that whenever he tries to get together with me, it's always at the last minute, like his other better plans fell through and I'm like the second choice. Doesn't really sit too well with me, but fuck it, I want revenge. I haven't had sex in a long time. I'm lonely, I'm heartbroken, so whatever, I'm going to go through with it. And... Finally, after we've been texting for like a month and he's sent me full color photographs that I did not ask for, mind you. I mean, really, what girl ever asks for those kind of pictures? I don't know one female, the horniest girl I know, maybe even myself. I've never asked for those pictures, but by God, we get them. Ladies of the 21st century, you understand this problem. But so I've got all this on him and I'm thinking, oh, his friend's just going to be livid when he finds out. Of course, his friend in that time makes it official with the girl that he ditched me for. So I'm, I'm really upset now. But finally, I uh, make a plan to go over to his house. And because of these red flags that I mentioned, I started to suspect something. And that something was that this Jake guy had a girlfriend. I had tried to add him on Facebook. He kind of let the friend request sit. I know that he was on Facebook at that time, but he just 
like maybe he didn't want me to see his page. So that was red flag number three. And I'm really, I also just have a sense about things very strongly. So I'm really sensing that this guy is definitely with someone. I'm the other woman. And that was something that I never wanted to be. It was something a lot of people tried to make me into my whole life. I was always someone who thought of myself no matter what I was wearing. As a highly moral person, I didn't want to hurt other people. I prided myself on the fact that I was a good listener and that I did my best to help my friends. I was always the one that they would come to during their biggest times of crisis, any time of the day or night. And I always felt like guys treated me like I was never worth their time. Like I wasn't girlfriend material. I just wasn't worthy. A lot of abusive relationships kind of had a hand in making me this way. So finally, I get to his house um, after a month of conversing with him. And, you know, I call him, oh, hey, I'm in the driveway. Like, where do you want me to come in? Oh, you know, the, the, do you see that basement door? Yeah, I see it. Uh, yeah, come in that way. Okay. Red flag number four. I don't even know how many red flags are now. So I get in there and I open up the door and, you know, he's conversing with me politely and everything. I'm walking in there in an outfit, not unlike this one, pleather dress, pleather shoes, pleather jacket with other one with studs on it. Cause a girl like me has to have multiple black pleather jackets in her wardrobe. And of course, being trying to be a gentleman, he offers, oh, may I take your jacket? Oh, of course. He's taking it. He tells me how badass it looks, and he's in his preppy-ass khaki pants and whatever. And right as this is going on, I'm looking around his room, and he's apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not nicer for you. I wish I had you know, a better place for you. I see these little framed photographs on his nightstand of this girl with like long brown hair. Now, I don't have my glasses on, and I didn't have them on back then, so I'm thinking, is it his, is it his sister? I think he has a sister. I don't know who that is, but why the fuck would he have the framed like senior-style photo? photos of his sister by his bed. Come on. Red flag number five. And so then at that point, you know, I'm kind of thinking, what a, I, I shouldn't be here. You know, I don't want to wreck somebody's relationship. I was always accused of being the other woman with a lot of my friends, even though I never really did anything like that. I had never given into the reputation that other people had set for me, and I didn't want to start now. But I just remembered how long I'd been alone and how long I'd been hurt I hadn't had a boyfriend in two years, for God's sake, and I was always the girl that got ditched for somebody else because I was never good enough. So I, in that moment, I just thought, you know, fuck it. I'm going to rebel against the things that I've held closest to me, my own morals. Um, I don't want to... I don't, I don't care anymore. You know, who the hell cares? So finally, um, you know, things start heating up, and eventually... He's laying down, and I'm standing up, and I look over, and I see my faux pleather or my faux leather dress in a corner. I see the purple lining of my bra in the corner. I see my shoes in the corner, and I realize that I've tossed off my clothes and all my jewelry, and I'm doing the exact same thing with my own morals. And I think, is it worth it? So I finally ask him, Jake, before anything else happens, I need to ask you something. Oh, yeah, sure, whatever do you have a girlfriend? The eyes close and he just looks like he's in physical pain. He won't answer me for like five minutes. He keeps telling me how beautiful I am, trying to change the subject because he thinks that I'm stupid enough to fall for that. And finally he says, yes, I do. And I ask him why he did what he did and he can't give me a straight answer. And again, I just think I shouldn't be doing this, but fuck it. So I kiss him a little more and then finally he says, look, I don't think we should do this. This doesn't feel right. So I leave knowing that I've almost thrown away all the things that I prided myself on. And I guess the moral of the story is there's a lot of things in this world that are worth rebelling against and fighting for, but 
one thing that you should never rebel against is your own self and your own ideals. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. If I could tell you how many times somebody's tried to make me the other woman. (laughs) You know, I have a rule. If I get more red flags than the the easiest setting on Minesweeper, I, I cut right out. Which I think is three. I think the easiest setting is three red flags. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Our next storyteller, once, uh, you know, we used to meet at uh, Johnson Public House when we were called JPH Story Slam. If you don't know, we used to be called JPH Story Slam because we met at Johnson Public House. Uh, And uh, one time he told a story there about traveling through, uh, uh, where was it? Joplin, Missouri. And he was at a gas station when a literal gunfight broke out. Like, no shitting you. Maybe he'll give a quick recap of that before he tells the rest of his story. They were pumping gas at at a gas pump, and two other cars started shooting at each other in Joplin, Missouri. Please put your hands together for Sammy Ghani. Thanks, everyone. Uh, So, quick recap of the Joplin story. uh, I guess by popular Adam Demand. Um, I was in a gas station in Joplin, Missouri at 2:45. My way to the Rose Bowl. Uh, Two pickups got in a pickup fight, smashing into each other. A guy dressed like a cowboy, Guy Fieri, jumped out of his black muscle car, hid behind our car, and started shooting at the hip behind gas tanks at one of the silver pickups, and they both drove off into the uh, night. Um, this story is not like that story at all, so I'm sorry. Um, but uh, the involves a circumstance also involving cars. Um, but my favorite kind of rebels is the unlikely rebel, the person that you're really surprised uh, is rebelling against anything. So this story is, is in honor of my grandmother, who is someone in my whole life I did not think she was a rebel uh, until one very specific moment. So some background on my grandmother. Um, so she was born in Yaffa in the Palestinian territories. She moved in 67 uh, into Kuwait. And then when Saddam invaded Kuwait, she moved to Jordan. Uh, had really bad luck at choosing places to live. Um, but she didn't really have time to be a rebel. She was, uh, like a lot of the women in Jordan uh, of her age, in her 80s, um, in the early 2000s, where she lived at home most of her life um, with my grandfather, who was a security guard in Amman, Jordan. And she was awesome, um, but lived a very you know, middle-of-the-road life. Uh, I would visit Jordan sometimes, and it was one of my big goals in life to talk to bring it closer to her, so I learned some Arabic because she didn't speak any English, and I didn't grow up speaking Arabic. Um, so we hit a level where we were conversational and could travel easily in public without any major issues. 
which leads me to my trip to Jordan in around 2005. Uh, my family has a saying about Amman, Jordan, which is that nothing is easy in Jordan, because it isn't. Everything is as difficult as humanly possible. Like, there's no addresses in Jordan, um, in Amman. So, like, when you're telling the tax driver to take you home, you say, okay, go to the Bashiti roundabout. And it's called Bashiti because there was a convenience store named Bashiti there. 15 years ago, it's closed. Uh, and it got bulldozed, so there's just a park there. Um, but if you know Bashiti, you know Bashiti. You told go Bashiti, then go further right, and then up a hill, and then circle, and then there's the house. Or when you send mail to my grandparents' store, you have to say, okay, to the downtown store near the library. Not that library, though, the other library. This is really what you ran the envelope. I'm not joking. It's like, with the purple awning, and like maybe there's a guy named Yazid outside, and like, talk to him. Like, that's really what you have to write. Like, nothing is easy. And the worst thing in Jordan is taking taxi rides with my grandmother, with my cousins, because the taxes in Jordan are just the absolute worst. Anyone here a Jordanian taxi driver? Great, awesome. No insulting uh, any Jordanian taxi drivers then. Because they're the worst. They're awful. Every single taxi driver I would get to the end, it, assuming I made it to the end of the stop, because a lot of times they would drop me off a mile from the house, and I'd say, oh, you have to go to Bashidi. It's like over there more. And like, oh, there's some hot girls over there I want to pick up. And I said, well, you're like a tax. It's your job, right? To like drive me places. And usually I was by myself. And I was always nervous about, you know, trying to stand up to this system that they were a part of because it was just the way things were. It's just the way things are. You get to the destination. The taxi driver says, okay, the fare is 17 dinar. And the meter says 13. You say, well, you know, the meter says 13. He says, oh, meter's broken. You're like... <laughs> every meter in the fucking country is broken? Like, really? This happened seven times this week, and it's Monday. Like, this is a big deal. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's broken. And then you eventually get in a fight with them back and forth. He's like, hey, look at your clothes, man. You're wearing, like, brown shoes. Like, you're a rich guy, right? You can, or, you can afford to bathe me four dinar. And then you keep fighting. You're like, four dinar, it's only, like, 50 cents. He starts to wear you down. And eventually, he's like, listen to me, my friend. Listen, I have a wife at home, Hannah. I have my children, Hassan, Hussein, Ahmed, Homid, another Hassan. It's always the same letter, because they're not, like, super creative guys. And they're like, I need to feed them. What's four dinar to you? and you feel awful and you're like I want to just go home here's four extra dinar happens every single time so one day I'm out with my grandmother and she didn't leave the house a lot unfortunately because in Amman as she's lived there um, since the 90s society's gotten more conservative and it's gotten more difficult for women to go outside um, big women are still allowed to go outside in Amman, of course. It's not Saudi Arabia. But over the years, she started wearing her hijab more when she went outside because she just felt the climate for her was an environment where she couldn't be as open and couldn't be herself when she's talking to people and conducting herself. And that made me really sad. Um, and it was difficult to see her kind of become more reserved um, and, you know, not that she was rebellious before, but less rebellious from dealing with people because it was a difficult environment for her. We're in this taxi one day, and we're just going back home. We'd been to the store. We walked there, but it was really, really hot, so we decided to take a taxi back. We're in the taxi, and we get to Bashiti, and I direct the guy, okay, you know Bashiti, over here, keep going, past Yazid, the purple store, whatever. And we're there, and we get back to our place. And the guy goes, okay, the price is 22 dinar. And the meter is like 10 or something. Like He's like really pushing his luck in this one. So I start to argue with him in my like broken Arabic. And he knows like I can't really hold my ground with him. My grandma's just sitting there quietly with her hijab and with her cane. She's sitting there listening to this conversation. He's like, come on. You know, I have my wife at home. Zakaria, my children. Ziad, Suhail, Zahin, Zaid, Ziad. 
And he's going, going, going. And my grandmother just, I see her sit up and she just takes her cane and just smacks him real hard across the face. And she goes, look at your face, so ugly, no one will ever love you. You're going to die alone. You have no wife, no children. You're a bachelor pig liar. You look at it, don't spit in your face and give you zero dinar. And he gets out of the taxi on his hands and knees and is like, I'm so sorry. You're right. I am a liar. I have no wife. I have no children. I'm going to die alone. Look at his face. It's so ugly. And we just get up and walk away. We just leave. I was like, Grandma, holy shit. I'm glad I learned Arabic so I can understand all of that. That was amazing. And uh, shout out to my grandma, the best rebel that I know. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. You know, Sammy told me when he got here, he goes, I, my story's not that good. <laughs> Is Melissa Hammond here? Awesome. Please put your hands together for Melissa Hammond. So I was always kind of a goody two-shoes. Um, not a rebel at all. But there was one day a year where I could kind of be a little rebellious. Um, that was April Fool's Day. And that's kind of a socially sanctioned day of pranksterness. Um, so you wouldn't really call it rebellion. But I'm going to tell the story anyway. Um, so there is a time in the lives of most goody two-shoes where they make a mistake. And it is an honest mistake. But it end up, ends up being really big and horrible, and they kind of turn into a rebel inadvertently. So this is a story about that. I was 12 years old. It was April Fool's Day, spring break, and I was at home with my brother and sister, both younger. Um, my dad was at work, and my mom was sleeping upstairs. She was working the night shift at the KitchenAid factory, um, so we were not allowed to wake her up under any circumstances except fire and um, mortal injury. Um, so if we were about to die or the house was on fire, we were allowed to wake her up. Um, so we had to be very quiet. So it was April Fool's Day, and I woke up, and I realized that I had not planned a good prank for the day. And this year, this day only comes around once a year, so I was very disappointed in myself. Um, I had done a really good prank the year before. I had created this contraption outside my parents' door out of, like, bracelets and sand buckets and string that would um, dump a bunch of Easter eggs on their heads when they opened it. And, like, that was really good, and I was really proud. And then this year came around, and I was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to, like, beat that. So I like panicked and I didn't have anything planned, but I'm like, this day only comes around once a year, so I've got to do something. So I do two things. The first thing I did every year, which was I taped the water sprayer down um, on the kitchen sink. It backfired on me every year because I was the only one who would turn on the kitchen sink and have it spray me in the chest. The other thing I did was I decided to hide all the cereal so that no one would be able to eat breakfast. Ha, 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 good one. <laughs> so I wake up in the morning, and I go downstairs, and my family ate a lot of cereal, and we had 
diverse tastes. So we had about like 10 to 12 boxes of cereal in our pantry. So I hid all of it on top of the fridge, in the cupboards, in the microwave. And I was like, ha, 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 I'm so clever. Um, No one really noticed either of my pranks. Um, Again, I was the one who fell for the water sprayer trick because I was the only one who went to the kitchen. Um, My brother and sister, they're on spring break. They don't have time for food. It's like the week of video games. So they're just upstairs playing video games. So I have changed my shirt twice today because it's soaking wet. Um, And lunchtime comes around. So I'm the oldest, so I was in charge of making breakfast. I mean, making lunch because my dad was at work. My mom was asleep. Um, So I call upstairs. What do y'all want for lunch? They're like, chicken nuggets. Easy, fine. All you have to do, preheat the oven to 375. Um, Take a cookie sheet. Get the chicken nuggets out of the freezer and then place them on the cookie sheet. Wait for the oven to preheat. Put them in the oven. Pretty simple. So I have laid out my chicken nuggets nicely on the cookie sheet. I have enough for each of us. And then I start setting out the plates on the table and the cups. And I get the ketchup out of the fridge. And then I turn around and look at the oven, and there is some interesting steam coming up from the vent on the oven. I'm like, oh, I didn't know the oven did that while it preheated. So I go about my business. (laughs) And then (laughs) after I have poured all the milk for us, um, I turn around again, and the steam is getting a little black and smelly. So I'm like, huh, something seems odd. So I open the oven door, and I see five boxes of smoldering cereal. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah, I hid the cereal in the oven this morning. And what I'm thinking is, oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble for ruining the cereal. (laughs) We had some really good stuff in there. Like, there was Captain Crunch. And I was like, ah, not the Captain Crunch. So, okay, like I said, I was a goody two-shoe. And um, I was book smart, not really street smart. So I had gotten an A in science every quarter since they had started, started giving us grades. Um, so I knew that the three ingredients for fire were um, fuel, heat, and oxygen. Um, but there in the moment, that didn't really come to the front of my mind. So my first thought, when faced with these five boxes of smoldering cereal, um, was to pick up the phone book next to the oven and start fanning it to put out the smoke. So I take my phone book and I energetically fan the fire with the phone book. And then all these flames start shooting up out of the oven. And I've got a roaring campfire here. Um, And I'm like, that's not so good. (laughs) So I'm a little worried because we have carpet in our kitchen and the fire is getting on the carpet. And I'm like, fanning didn't work. Let me try the water sprayer from the sink, which I had taped down. 
So I turn on the water at full blast, and I've got my little hose here, and I'm like, spray! And the water is coming up in an arc, like, straight down. And the fire's over here. And I'm up against it like David against Goliath. And I'm like, oh, water just a little farther. But it does not go a little farther. So I throw it down and I'm like, ah, what to do? Better call my father on the telephone. So I pick up the phone. I'm like, oh, hello, dad. The kitchen is on fire. He's like, wake up, you goddamn mother. So I'm like, Oh, yeah, fire is one of the reasons we're allowed to wake her up. (laughs) So I run up the stairs, and I shake her awake, and I'm like, Mom, the kitchen is on fire. So she throws the covers off and runs downstairs, and she's like, What did you do? And she's a pretty calm person. She assesses the situation calmly takes the fire extinguisher from directly to the right of the oven, (laughs) extinguishes the fire, and there we go. No more fire. So there are a couple things I learned from this experience. Number one, when you extinguish a fire with a fire extinguisher, it leaves a lovely um, layer of dust over every surface in your kitchen, even if you weren't pointing the fire extinguisher in that direction. And if you're the one who started the fire, you have to clean it all up. <laughs> the second thing I learned is that when Captain Crunch catches on fire, it melts together in this like crazy, like melted sugar crystallized ball of awesomeness. The end. (laughs) Thank you, Melissa. Who here has started a kitchen fire? You're not alone. I'll raise my hand. I, one time when I was a young chap, thought that the microwave was my own personal spaceship. And I got up early on a Saturday morning to watch cartoons and started pushing buttons. And my parents awoke to the, uh, why would you store a loaf of bread in the microwave? But they awoke to the loaf of bread in the microwave burst into flames. (laughs) I once had a friend who, he he moved back from the Navy and his, his parents had left his house and they moved up north to their vacation home and were trying to sell their family childhood home or whatever. And so he stayed there. And he would often just light candles. And I would tell him, Randy, you can't just leave candles lit uh, when you leave. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> like one candle was like in this giant metal holder. Like it was a huge candle. And it was this like metal holder for the candle. I don't know what the word is. And, uh, you know, fire heats up metal. And so I'd say, Randy, you can't just, like, that's how you start fires. And he'd say, no, 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 that's not, fires don't start that way. (laughs) He came home one day from, like, the mall, (laughs) and his bedroom was on fire. (laughs) 
because he lit this candle and left. Like, it was pretty funny. Uh, Our next storyteller, I don't think, has ever told a story. His name is Brad. His last name is Fryhofer. So clap your hands for Brad Fryhofer. So I've always considered myself uh, a little bit of a rebel. I've always wanted to fight kind of the isms that exist in our society. What I didn't expect as I would start to go throughout life is that um, the greatest battle, the greatest resistance I was going to face was actually from my own body. So I moved to Iowa. (laughs) I moved to Iowa in um, 2008 to take my dream job at the age of 23. Um, And so I am very fortunate enough to be able to do social justice work every day at an institution of higher education there. Um, and in my life up to that point, I had had a few near-death experiences. I had gotten into a car accident that was pretty severe when I was 16. Uh, I had some uh, ulcerative colitis, for those of you who know who that, some, some challenges there, all right? Yeah, we got some folks here. All right, yeah, so you know what it's like. Um, I got diagnosed with a genetic heart disease uh, when I was uh, about three months after I visited uh, or I arrived in Ames, Iowa. And I have an ICD and defibrillator implantment into my chest. So at this point, I'm starting to count the number of times. Like, how lucky am I going to get here? Uh, I think I'm past the worst. And so my family is actually from Baraboo, Wisconsin. Um, and they live now in Madison. So I would have conversations with them. And uh, in the fall of 2012, over Thanksgiving, we were, we were all eating dinner. Uh, it was my, my brother and my um, sister-in-law, my nephew, my mom, and my dad. And we were sitting talking about how I've kind of dodged some bullets uh, throughout life and, and that we're so fortunate to be together, uh, to be able to share this time together. And I really do think that that, that, is, that is true. So I ate a delicious meal. And I get in the car and I drive the four and a half, five hours back to Ames, Iowa. Monday goes by and I feel a little discomfort in my chest. I'm not quite sure um, what that's about, but I, I, I'm up a little bit in the evening. And, and my partner at the time, she looks at me and she's, she's feeling me move around. And so she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know, it's got a little pain. I'm, I'm sure it's nothing. Tuesday comes about. Uh, Tuesday evening, and I try sleeping again, and I'm noticing the same problem, except it's worse. And I'm starting to feel some pain right around in my lower lungs. I'm a little more nervous now, because again, I've gone through the hard stuff. I'm like, maybe something's up here. You know, two nights, three nights, they always say come in after that. And so I look at my partner, who now is exhausted. She hasn't slept uh, two nights, neither have I. And I say, hey, it's about 2 a.m. I think I need you to drive me to the ER. And She's looking at me like, really? Is this a thing? Or are you just anxious? What's going on here? And so she agrees to take me to the hospital. And I should preface, the most scary place for me in the world is the hospital. There's nothing I'm more terrified in life than to be in the hospital. Because you really have no control in some ways. And it's terribly frightening. So my partner drops me off at the ER. I'm a little anxious walking in. 
I walk up and the, the person's like, uh, what are you here for? And I'm like, I've, I've been having some discomfort in my chest. I just wanted to check it, you know, get it checked out. I got a heart condition. I'm sure I'm fine, but I just want to get it set. And she's like, okay, um, have a seat. We'll, we'll grab you in a little bit. And it's in Ames, Iowa. So I know at this point, uh, I know a lot of folks. I've been working there three or four years. So I know most of the folks and I've had the privilege of getting to know many doctors and nurses who work in the area. So they get me all set up. They run an EKG and a doctor who I know comes in and I look and I'm like, Steve, how are you? And Steve looks at me. He's like, I'm good, but you're here. So that's a problem. And I say, yeah. And he's like, well, let's go see if we can figure out what's going on. He's like, we're going to get you some x-rays first. How's that sound? And I said, all right, sounds good to me. Uh, so we send off, we go, we go over and I got to stand up and put my arms up and they got to have me breathe in so I can expand my, my lungs so they can take a good snapshot. And I do all that, and so far I'm feeling okay, right? X-rays, I can do. As long as they're not poking me with a needle, like, I think we're going to be okay. So I come back into the, the, waiting, the, the room that I'm in, and about 10 minutes later, uh, Steve comes back into the room. And Dr. Fisher looks at me, and he knows all of my health complications, and he says, Brad, you are never going to believe this. And I'm like, what do you got for me today? Can't imagine. What do you got? What is this? It sounds good. Uh, And he's like, you're going to have to call your boss because you're not going to be in the office for probably the next 15 to 20 days. And I say, oh, okay. Um, Should I do that now or do you want to tell me what what we're going to talk about? Uh, And he's like... I just can't, I, he's, he's like, I, I can't believe it, but you have right now 12 blood clots in your lungs. You've got six on each side. We have to lay you down, and we got to start some shots into your stomach immediately. And I look, my heart, as it is right now, just thinking about it, is racing. I'm totally scared, and I'm all by myself in little old Ames, Iowa, in the hospital room at four in the morning. And this is a moment where, when I talk about that idea of rebelling, I'm so angry with my body. I just can't believe something else has happened. So Steve says, we got to get you some other things going on here too. We got to take some more tests as well. Um, But we're going to move you up to the hospital bed where you're going to be staying for a little bit. Uh, And I said, okay. Um, and so I called my boss, said, I'm, doesn't look like I'm going to be in for a bit. Um, thank gosh I got another staff member to help me. Um, and then I called my parents, and I said, I've got some bad news. Mom, Dad, don't freak out. My mom's already had a few of these, so her blood pressure's already rising a little bit. And I say, uh, yeah, I've got some blood clots, and I'm going to be in the hospital for a bit. And she's like, we're going to be coming in a few days. And I said, Okay. So my family arrives about a week, uh, 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 shortly thereafter, within a few days. And about halfway through uh, my stay at the hospital, my parents run out to Target to get some just essentials because they've, again, been staying in a hotel for a while. And I'm sitting in the hospital chair in the hospital uh, in, the, in, the, in the room, and I'm just starting to feel this sense that uh, I don't feel very comfortable and then I see the, a nurse walk in quickly. She walks up next to me. She doesn't say anything, doesn't smile, doesn't look at me. Another nurse is coming in. 
She comes in next to me, too. Three, four more nurses come in. And I'm starting to get scared. I'm starting to get real scared. I notice now that we got a problem, and I don't know what it is, but I can hear that heart rate monitor next to me ticking, and it is moving. And I'm noticing something's wrong. The docs come in immediately afterwards. They give me something, and just before they give me this something, I have that moment of, like, I'm going to die. This is it. I wake up a day later. I'm in the intensive care unit. My mom and dad are at my side. And I'm still alive. And my mom looks. I'm like, what happened? And she's telling me, we left for like 10 minutes. We got a call from the doctor. We went like 75 on that road that you can only go 30 on. We were so scared. And I'm like, me too. But I survived. I would get out of the hospital another week after that. Uh, And I'd be able to travel and live. And one of the lessons that I've taken away is I'm going to continue to have to fight my body on a lot of different issues. But what it has given me, and what it has given me, this epiphany that took me from 2012 in the fall all the way to last May, it has now reminded me, what, what do I really want to live for? Because at any moment, maybe I'll have another thing that will come up. What do I really want to wake up every day and do? Do I want to love fully? Do I want to tell the people that I love that I love them? Yes. Do I want to give other people happy and wonderful emotions that I meet day to day? Yes. So I better go out and start living. And I better go out and start making a difference. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Uh, So, uh, you know... I've said this at the last few story slams, and it's really true. It's without fail at every story slam, the cool thing that comes out is that this is not just about getting up and making people laugh, telling a funny story, whatever, you know. It's getting up and kind of opening up your heart and like sharing this part of you that nobody else has a right to know. They don't need to know it. And I just want to thank Brad, because that's, that's a great story. That's a serious story. <clears throat> Put your hands together, please. She signed up only as Abby this time, but usually she signs up as Abigail. So please put your hands together for Abigail Groff. Um, so if we're still doing the suspending the time limit thing, um, quick shameless plug, I am also, I work for a fair trade organization that's involved with the ESOS fashion show, and you should all totally come, it's going to be great. Um, like many of the other people who have told stories up here tonight, I am the dork nerd goody two-shoes, um, like almost like afraid of the consequences type, I'm not that way as much anymore, but particularly when I was like in school and a kid, I was like so so not a rebel so that doesn't make sense in the context of this in a way but I found ways to make it work to my advantage it took a while um, I was a kind of kid 
who like read under the covers with a flashlight until I was like 13, something like that. Like, yeah, like um, the one time my friends and I decided that we were going to be um, kind of edgy and we were going to like sit at the popular kids lunch table. Um, and then the combination lock on my locker got covered in chewed gum by those girls. And I was like, no, that's okay. Don't have to do that again. That's fine. Whatever. Um, I hung out with a lot of kids too who weren't necessarily goody two shoes. I mean, like, they were like math team kids, good grades kids, band kids, all of that. Um, but one thing that one of them decided to do one summer is to start go and start going and exploring old abandoned buildings. You know, like um, if you're suburban white kids in the Midwest, the most rebellious thing you can think to do is to like trespass. Um, so that was a really fun thing that everybody wanted to do that summer. Not me. No, I was terrified. I was always like, don't you guys want to watch The Princess Bride again? Or um, maybe we could like uh, play Risk or something like that. Um, but there was this one night, um, it was the 4th of July, and I remember this very well, because we had decided to watch the fireworks in my friend's backyard. And you know that like whenever um, you have like a small town fireworks display, there's always like that one street that has the absolute best view, and you don't have to go put out lawn chairs or anything. You can just like sit on somebody's deck, watch the fireworks, it's great. Um, and there happened to be a boy in this group of people who I had a pretty big crush on. In addition to being a goody two-shoes dork nerd, I was also terrified of like looking stupid in front of a boy I liked. Um, there's actually a quote in one of my favorite books that says, flossing with barbed wire is easier than admitting you like somebody when you're a nervous teenager. Yeah, so that's how I felt about that. Um, and so after the fireworks were over, um, it was maybe like 9.30, 9.45 or something like that. And naturally, as a bunch of like Mountain Dew-filled high school kids, we were like, let's do something else. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's still dark out, and it's summer, and I don't have to, anywhere to be tomorrow. Um, so what we decided to do was go to Denny's. This is what I thought we were doing. Apparently... This is what we were telling my friend's dad so we could borrow the car to go to an abandoned factory and walk around. On the 4th of July, when all of the police are out on the streets directing traffic away from the fireworks, people are drunk, and in my head, this is just adding up to be the worst possible thing that you could ever do. I mean, like, I wouldn't go to an abandoned factory in daylight, like, with a tour guide or something. If I had somebody with a name tag on, it was like, yes, hello, this is my old abandoned factory, let's walk through, and I would be looking like, I don't know, those floorboards look really, really weak. Um, is that asbestos? Is that anthrax? So I think, um, no, 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 bad plan. Just bad plan across the board. This is exactly what I didn't want to do. I didn't know we were doing this. I thought I was just going to get some mozzarella sticks and maybe figure out if Zach with 1K, not CK, just K, it was super cool, thought I was cute. I was like, this is going to be great. And so we're driving and we pass the Denny's. Like every town has like a Denny's or a Perkins or something. And you know like exactly where it is. And so we drove past where you're supposed to turn for Denny's. And I was like, guys, we're going the wrong way. And they're like, no, we're not. And I'm like, yeah, we are. Like it's right there. And they were like, no, no, we're going to Royster Clark. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Are, like, are you serious? 
And they were like, yeah, it's going to be great. I heard they just put some more caution tape up. And I was like, are you... Are you kidding me? Are you actually kidding me? So I'm terrified, and I'm with all of these kids who are incredibly straight-laced, good grades, but math team, as I've said before, um, and I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this really badly. The other thing I want to figure out is if Zach thinks that I'm cute. And something in my brain clicked in that parking lot, shaking in my Converse and my band camp shirt, um, which I did have, and I tie-dyed it myself. Um, and I was like, I can use this. I don't have to break the rules, and I can, I can have the upper hand in this. So I said, you guys, I really don't want to go. Maybe I'll just stay here. And everybody's looking at me like, you loser. Come on, blah, blah, blah. And Zach, I can see, is kind of, like, weighing the situation because, like, he's super into abandoned factories. Like, he went to one, like, in, like, on his summer vacation or whatever, like, in the Dells, (laughs) you know? So it was exotic and, like, super cool. Um, And I, they were like, come on, it's going to be fine. It's going to be super cool. And I was like, "I, I just, I really, really don't want to. And then Zach just, like, looks over, like, his shoulder like, to the factory, and he goes, well, uh, maybe um, I could keep you company? And I was like, yeah, cool, okay, bye. And so we went to Denny's by ourselves, and I didn't have to break the rules, and being a goody two-shoes is fine. (laughs) The end. I have nothing funny to say after that story. <laughs> Emily Eckloff, where are you at? Put your hands together for Emily! So, I wanted to start out by saying, Abby, I'm so happy you named names. Because I really wanted to know who you were talking about. Like, all of our friends in high school loved, like... When she was like, they love abandoned buildings. I was like, okay, that's one of like 25 people that I know we both knew who constantly did that all the time. I don't know. It was weird. But yeah, that was, I, I remember I remember that time. Anyway, um, I don't really know. I, I was not a rebel, and I don't think it was when I was little. I was, it wasn't because I was like scared. It was because I loved being a snitch. Like, I was Randall from Recess. Like, it was awful. But, like, I loved it. I loved, not so much when I got into school, but, like, when I was little. I had three older siblings, and they were all monsters. And so I just told on them all the time. (laughs) Everything. Um, And my two oldest siblings are quite a bit older than I am. So I lost a lot of those opportunities, because they were, like, in high school, and I was, like, eight, and I didn't know anything that was happening. But my other brother is about three years older than me, and he and I were pretty close growing up. And he's... Brilliant. He grew up to be a physicist. He built particle accelerators for a short time. Like, he's just amazing. He's also an idiot. He's the dumbest person I've ever met. And this is going to be kind of an, a short amalgam of things that he did that I somehow got blamed for in our adolescence because it was my job to make sure... Like, we reached a threshold where my parents were like, okay, we obviously can't control Nate anymore. Emily, you do it because you hate getting in trouble so much that that's like a motive for you. 
So we reached this magical point, because for a while my mom would pay both of us to babysit the other one when she was gone. So we'd both like be pretty good. But we like didn't tell each other, but then Nate found out that I was getting paid more because I was actually babysitting us. Um, and then he decided to just be an asshole and make my job really hard. But my mom did stop paying him, so like, small wins. Um, so the first time, so he always loved science. He would like hear one thing and apply it to something totally different. And this, like, at this point, I think I'm in like eighth grade. He's like a junior in high school. He should know better than this. But he hears from somewhere that increasing the temperature of glow sticks makes them glow brighter. And he's like, do you know when and where is the perfect time to test this? 4 a.m. in our parents' kitchen on a Wednesday. So I wake up to him knocking on my door very quietly. And I go and answer it. And he's holding a pot. And it has a glow stick in it. And he's really excited. He's like, Emily, come with me. And I follow him. No questions at this point. Sleepy Emily is, like, very agreeable to things. Like, she's very easy to lead. It's not... I shouldn't be telling a room full of strangers that. Um, so I follow him onto the kitchen where he has other pots. Uh, I don't know where he got these glow sticks, but there's a lot of glow sticks. And what he's failing... And they're, they're, like, at various, like, boiling points. And he's like, he's like, Emily, look at all of the different... Like, look at how it's... Look at the science! And all I'm looking at is the pot with the highest heat... The glow sticks, which are in plastic, which melts, has melted, and now one of my mom's, like, nicest big pots is covered in glowing plastic and water. And he could not be more delighted about this. And so everything else is starting to melt. I turn off everything, and I make him, like, I don't, I don't even know what he did it. I told him to fish out the rest of the glow sticks before they melted, but then I had to come back because he was going to just do it with his hands. Like, I would like to point out again, junior year of high school. This is not a child. He had his driver's license. Not great. Um, so that was one time. I, I, I tell him because some of it spilled, and so there's, like, glowing liquid everywhere. And I'm exhausted. We have school tomorrow. It's Wednesday. And I'm like, I'm going to bed get the towels, just clean it up, just put it in a garbage bag and throw it away and we'll just, we'll deal with it in the morning. And so he goes to get like my mom's like nice towels, like white towels to clean up melted glow sticks. And we have a, like a room specifically with garbage towels for shit he did. Like he knows where it is, not those towels. So he gets the nice towels and I wake up tomorrow morning, the next morning. I think everything's fine. I think like I handled it, got it, earned my babysitting money, even though my parents were both home and it was just for them. And I go into the bathroom, which we shared, and I'm brushing my teeth. And like I feel, you know how you can like feel like objects if they're like big. You can like feel like a presence shift. I look, and there is a garbage bag hung from the back, like the towel hook on the back of the door of the bathroom, just dripping, glowing nonsense onto the floor. And so I brought it into Nate's bedroom, and I was like, you couldn't just go, this was, you were like, no, I finished enough, so I'll just leave this in the house? And he was like, yeah. That was the thought process. So that was one time. When we were slightly younger, 
um, he stole a bunch of my craft glitter, which was very expensive. It was a it was a birthday present, and I was furious. And he legitimately made a glitter bomb out of PVC pipe and my very expensive craft glitter, uh, and set it off in our basement. <laughs> Uh, like when you like sandblast things, how the sand like gets kind of that's that happens with glitter too. When you make a bomb of it, um, I got in trouble for that. Just another fun fact. So this trend continued, and I finally started like making the argument that like, can we at least both get in trouble? Like, can we share it a little bit? And so then my mom agreed to start paying me to, like, make it more of a game. My parents were, like, great, by the way. They weren't, like, completely absent. Like, he was really sneaky. Like, they didn't know he was making a bomb. Like, it's... Anyway. So my mom started making it, like, okay, if you can, like, if you can prove that you prevented a disaster, you get, like, 20 extra dollars. Like, it became more of a game. And that summer, I was like, I'm going to make so much bank. Like, this is going to be amazing. So my brother had a friend over, which he was allowed, my rule, he was allowed to have one friend over if my parents were gone. And it was summer. It was very nice out. And I, much like my dear young Abby, wanted nothing more than to sit in my window and just read my book. But they were in the garage where my brother had a workbench. And so I was like, okay, I gotta keep an eye on this. I gotta. So I was sitting in my window, which had like a great view of the driveway. But I couldn't really, I was like, not, I was like, if something happens, I gotta be ready to go. So I opened my window. And I was, like, sitting kind of in the house. It wasn't very comfortable. But it was a good thing that I was doing it, because I'm looking up, like, every five minutes or so. And I look up, and there's, like, a little bit of smoke. There's, like, a little bit of The garage is closed, by the way. And there's, like, a little bit of smoke coming out the bottom of it. And I just, like, I, don't, I like, didn't want to believe it, so I just waited. I was like, maybe it's just, I don't know, like, just, just uh... Prank? I don't know what it is. Like I just... So then I wait a little bit longer, and then uh, there's smoke like, coming out the window of the garage. And I'm like, all right. Um, this is extra embarrassing, because my dad's a fireman, just by the way. Um, so I, I hop down from the window, realize I don't have the fire extinguisher. So I, instead of going in the house like a normal human, cl- try to climb like back through my window, get the fire extinguisher, run up to the garage, like enter the garage code wrong like four times, have the garage, the garage comes up, smoke just billows out, and at this point I notice that it's colored smoke, and it smells kind of bad. You know, like stink bombs. You know, like how stink bombs work. And I look, and as the smoke starts clearing out of the garage, I see my brother and his friend Devin sitting on the floor of the garage, cross-legged, playing cards, and there is a bucket in between them with like 30 smoke bombs that they had lit off. My brother looks up and sees me, stops the stopwatch, and goes, it's not going to get you $20. (laughs) So I guess my story is, if you're not a rebel and you have to watch one, like at least do some fun things, because you'll get in trouble anyway. All right, please put your hands together for Maggie Mayer. I'm so nervous. 
Um, so I've been coming to Story Slam since it was JPH Story Slam because I live right next door. Um, I've never told a story, um, but I thought I'd sign up because it's my birthday. <laughs> So if I told you that, you'll like the story more, right? Um, so I grew out of my rebellious stage very early, like before kindergarten. Um, I was really naughty, like so bad. My mom had um, several books that were like, you and your strong-willed child. <laughs> How to handle a free-spirited daughter. Like, that kind of stuff. Um, I was angry um, at three years old because I didn't get an American Girl doll. So I went upstairs and broke the ears off of my grandmother's precious uh, Boston Terrier statue and hid the evidence. I was three. Like... I don't know how I did it. I don't remember it, but I know that I did it. Um, I peed next to the same grandmother's bed. Um, that was just curiosity. I wasn't angry. <laughs> and, um, yeah, my sister's here. I'm sure she can remember, like, more of the shit that I did. Um, oh, like, broke into a medicine cabinet and opened all of the child-safe locks at two years old and dumped them all out. Um, these were all at my grandmother's house. Like, that should probably say something about her, like, grandmothering. It's, like, very absent. Um, but she's great. Like, I love her. Um, but probably the worst thing I ever did that, like, could have killed someone, um, I was probably like five, like four or five, like right about the time I was growing out of it. And my cousin Fidelia, um, she's a year older than me, but she's an angel. You know, she would never do anything bad, but she did whatever I told her to do. So we decided it was a good idea to break into my aunt's bathroom, her mother's bathroom, take out the entire contents of her uh, overnight bag. Um, she's really into like holistic medicine. So there's like essential oils and like herbal supplements, toothpaste, medication. We decided to mix it all up in this um, Hello Kitty uh, tea set that my mother got for me at a garage sale. Because um, if you're going to make poison, you might as well do it beautiful. <laughs> And so we mixed it up, and it looks like um, like a shamrock shake. I've never had a shamrock shake, but I know what they look like because people lose their shit. But that's what it looked like. So we mixed it up in the bathroom, and it looks beautiful. It's a lovely color. We pour it into this Hello Kitty tea set. You know, we fill up this beautiful pot and the little teacups. And we bring it out to the side of the road. We haul my childhood, you know, table and chair set, you know, because that's what you get when you're little. You have a kitchen set, and you have a table set, you have a tea set. So we bring it out to the end of the road. I have this neighborhood that's full of children. So many children. And we set it up. And like fishwives, we start selling our wares. And it's called green lemonade. <laughs> green lemonade 50 cents 
it's poison. It's not good for you. But luckily, like, it's during the middle of the day, so, like, kids are taking their naps, or they're at daycare. I don't know why we were home. Um, my parents are really overprotective, so I don't know where they were. Um, but we were selling this, and, and these two children come, you know, walk past. And they're kind of, like, whispering to each other, and they keep walking. And then they get to their house or, you know, whatever, where they're staying. They say, hey, we can hear them from where we're sitting selling poison. And they say, can we buy a green lemonade treat to their parents? Say, can you give us money to buy poison? (laughs) And we look at each other. And we're four, so we don't say, oh, shit. But, like, the four-year-old version of that, like, oh, oh, my God. So we quickly close up shop and run into the bushes We had these, like, horrible arborvitae bushes before my parents redid the house. And we hid in the bushes until they were gone. Because they came back with their parents' money to buy our poison. (laughs) And we just hid in the bushes. So I don't know if that's, like, what made me grow out of it. Like, I almost killed someone with herbal supplements. Like, local children poison other children um so i don't know like i'm going through like a second adolescence now like i have facial piercings and tattoos and i'm at a story slam talking um so we'll see where that goes and like what kind of trouble that gets me into um but i will never sell poison on the side of the road Thanks, Maggie. Rosie Rickard? 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 All right. Rosie, give it up for Rosie. Hello. I'm kind of happy I'm going last or close to last. It looks like a bunch of people already left. (laughs) Makes it a little easier up here. I feel that anxiety that you had. Um, Not unlike the first story told tonight, my story um, is also about skipping school. Unfortunately, I was not nearly as successful, um, and I only did one attempt, so maybe I should have taken notes. But uh, like many people, growing up, my form of rebellion was teenage angst. You know, no one knows how I feel. They just don't understand. And I had five older siblings, and there's a significant age gap, too. So it was kind of like I had seven parents that just didn't understand. Um, But I was also mostly a goody-two-shoes. You know, I did, like, honors classes and lots of extracurriculars. But my best friend um, texts me and says, I didn't finish my English report we're skipping school for the first half tomorrow, and we're going to go to Robo's, which is like the deli down the street. And we're going to have breakfast sandwiches, and I'm going to write my report, and it's going to be great. And I was like, oh, perfect. That sounds like a great plan. Now, I had nothing going on in my classes. I had finished all my homework that I needed to do. Other people might have just asked their parent, hey, I don't really have anything going on. Shannon wants to do this. Like... What do you think? But I, needing all the control that I needed, was like, she doesn't need to know. 
I'm just going to go. I'm going to go to school. And I went to a pretty big school, too. So we had, like, a lot of hall monitors at the exits. But as long as you didn't go in, you're fine. Um, But this was also Halloween. And I really like dressing up. So I was in a full-fledged Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle costume. (laughs) Like, I was Raphael with the red, you know, bandana and all. Yeah. Um, And I was like, this really shouldn't be a problem. There are so many people. What's going to go wrong? Now, the next morning, I wake up, and I'm going to school, and my mom offers to drive me to school. And I was like, what? She never did this. Absolutely never, ever. Sometimes I'd miss the bus, and I asked her if I could get a ride, and she'd say no. And my school is seven miles away from my house. (laughs) Um... So I'd work out something, do whatever, but I was like, I can't say no. She'll know what's up. Why would I not want a ride to school? So I was like, yeah, yeah, that would be great. And we go, and you drop off like pretty far away from where you enter, so it shouldn't be a big deal anyway. So I'm walking, I'm walking towards the main entrance, and I see my mom's car drive away. I'm like, okay. I take a sharp turn, and it's also by another entrance too, so it's not that weird that I'm walking away. Um, to where my best friend is sitting parked in her car. And I hop in, and we pull around the corner, and all of a sudden, I just hear her go, oh, shit. And I look, and we have a very distinguishable family car. It's an electric blue PT Cruiser. (laughs) So we see my mom turning back and starting to circle the parking lot. And we're like, what do we do? And I was like, quickly, go, turn, turn, go the other way, go to the back of the school. But she was stuck behind someone that was backing up. So other, other people's cars, they have like those levers to like move your seat back or whatever. So my view was to get out of sight as quickly as possible because I don't think anyone else was in a Teenage Moon Ninja Turtle costume <laughs> hiding from their mother. And so I go for that lever, but I forget in my best friend's car it's automatic. So it's just me going as slow as possible, fading out of the window. But she, she waits it out, like out of sight, you know, she's, she's doing the lookout and she sees my mom's car finally leave. And we figure, oh, maybe she circled back. Maybe there was a lot of traffic out of the other exit. No big deal. We're in the clear. So we exit and we turn, and we go to go down to to Robo's down the street, and I get a call from my mother. And I'm like, oh, Shannon, she knows. And that's that's why I never did anything that my mom said not to do, because I I tried it once, and it failed epically. And it was three years prior, and I learned my lesson, right? I don't answer. I figure, I don't know what's going on, but maybe, maybe if I ignore it, it isn't a thing. She calls again. We decide that we do have to pick up the phone. I answer, and I say, hello? (laughs) She goes, Rosie, where are you? Um, I'm in in Shan's car. We're going to Robo's. What do you think you're doing? What's going on? She starts going off on me, going crazy. I'm reasonably so. You know, I guess I shouldn't have done that. Um, But then my, my best friend quietly says, give me the phone. I'll, I'll tell her it's my idea. Like, I'll take one for the team. Great best friend move. It was awesome. So I go to hand her the phone. I'm like, I don't want to talk to this woman anymore. Yes, please. You can talk to her. And she, she says, 
Uh, hi, Janice. Um, yeah, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I was the reason why we decided to skip school. And, you know, Rosie didn't even really want to do it, but she went along with me. And my mom's response is, oh, no, Shannon, I'm sure it was a great idea to skip school. No, yeah, if you didn't do your report, what else were you going to do? No, that makes a lot of sense. That was, I'm sure that was a great idea. What the problem is, is that my Rosie, you know, and that's what makes it more serious. I'm her Rosie. I think trying to bring up the fact that she brought me into this world again. My Rosie lied to me. So she says, no, 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 thank you, Shannon, for being honest. And yeah, I'm sure it was a great idea. She's laughing her ass off. She just tried to take the blame. And my mom immediately says like, yes, please skip school all the time. That's wonderful. And what really is the the kicker for this story is when I get the phone back, And this is something that is still quoted to me today. My mom says, you want to play games, Rosie? Well, let the games begin. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Please put your hands together for Nicole Carlisle. Hello, hello, hello. I was going to do a really cool dance and be like, oh, they saved the best for last, but then other people signed up after me, so fuck those people. Um, So unlike a lot of people who came up tonight, I have always been a rebel, evidenced by the fact that I was asked to not return to Sunday school as a child because I was asking too many questions. I didn't get kicked out because the Lutherans, even though I've always thought of them as like lazy Catholics, um, are friendly people. So they uh, just asked my grandmother not to bring me back, for which she was extremely devastated and never mentioned anything to me. So I just thought magically, hey, I don't have to go to Sunday school anymore because that was really fucking boring. Um, And then when I was older, my mom was like, yeah, they asked you not to come back. And your grandma was so embarrassed. She just never told anyone about it. So that happened. Um, So I'm actually going to tell you guys a story about my dad tonight. Um, I come from a long line of rebels, uh, which I'm very proud about. One of my favorite stories doesn't include my dad. Um, My grandma told me this when I was an adult about my great-great-grandmother, who was a farmer. I come from a long line of farmers. And... um, she had sold a cow to this guy and then her husband went off to war and the guy was like, oh, I'll pay you for the cow after the spring harvest. And my great-great-grandma, this was back, you know, in like the 1800s, was like, yeah, that sounds legit. And the guy never gave her the money because he was like, whatever, she's a woman and her husband's off to war, so she's not going to do anything about it. And then my great-great-grandma was like, fuck this guy and took her son, who was five, and walked five miles to this other guy's farm and like busted through his fence and took her cow back and took back the calf that the cow had had in the meantime. So that was like, you know, one of the great rebel stories of the Carlisle line. Uh, <laughs> love that story. Um, but this one is about my dad, a notorious alcoholic and jailbird as he is. Love him to death. He's the craziest person I know. He's also probably the highest person I know. You know, oh, it's my therapy, you know, getting in the car and going for a drive. And it's like, okay, dad, um, 
think they call that a negative coping mechanism, but if you want to call that therapy, then that's fine. Call it whatever you want. Um, so this story of my dad, he's a better storyteller than I am, but I'll try to you know, make this one good. So you have to kind of picture him. Terry Frederick Carlisle is his name, commonly known as TC around town and in the local pool halls of Sparta, Wisconsin, which is a fantastic town if you've ever been there. Um, He uh, tells me this story when he was a kid, okay? So dad was born in 1948, Vietnam vet, amazing person, crazy, like I said, ever since he was a kid. Um, so him and his friend are at the bowling alley because that's what you did in Sparta, Wisconsin. If you were a teen, there's really nothing to do there. Um, and he's like, you know, we walked out to the parking lot and um, I forgot to say, my dad, you kind of have to picture him as like a cross between George Carlin and Tommy Chong. If they were to have a baby, it would be my father. Um, so I forgot to say that. You have to have that visual in your head. He's like six foot tall, like the skinniest person you've ever met. Um, and he's like, so we were like walking out of the bowling alley one night, me and my friend, and we see this car and we know it's a sheriff's car because he had the hot rod and he's the only person in town who had this car. And I was like, Okay, you know. Um, And he's like, the kid had taken it down to the pool hall and left the keys in the car. So my friend and I get this idea, right? We're going to take the sheriff's car. Because it's a small town sheriff, so he's an asshole and he thinks he, like, runs the joint, right? Um, So my dad and his friend, like, take this car and they're, like, hot rotten through the hills of Sparta, Wisconsin, you know? Um, And then the cops find them, obviously, because it's, like, the one car like this in town. So obviously they're going to catch them because it's hard not to miss it. And he's like... We're rolling through the back hills. He's like, we're gunning it. And this was like a race car at the time, right? So they know they can outrun the cops because my dad knows a lot about cars, right? So he's like, we're in the sheriff's car that we had just stolen. We're like cruising through the back hills, running away from the cops. And they're like on our tail with like the lights flashing. And he's like, they get right on us. And he's like, we just bust off like into the cornfields, right? So he's like, we're off-roading in this car, and the sheriff, and he's like, we go into this cornfield, and we, like, crash this car, right? So he's like, we've crashed the sheriff's car in this cornfield, and he's like, we just take off running, right? He's like, we take off, we run home. He's like, we get home, sneak in the house. No one even knows. He's like, I called my, I talked to my buddy the next day. Like he, you know, no one came and found him and they're looking for this car. And the next day they find it like in the middle of this cornfield. Right. And he tells me, he's telling me the story, you know, 40, 40 years later or whatever. And he's like, we never got caught. He's like, we crashed that car in the middle of a cornfield. No one ever found out it was us. Now I'm telling you guys the story, but so you guys know that it was him. Um, and I know that it was him because he told me the story, but at the time nobody knew. Right. So he gets away with like this in his mind, like this epic heist, you know, (laughs) like this sheriff's car, just cruising it through the fields, like crashes it in a cornfield, leaves it there, runs home. So this is one of the epic tales my father has told me, probably the greatest rebel that I have ever met. Thank you. Molly, are you still here? Please put your hands together for Molly! 
I'm sorry, but this is going to be our last story for tonight. So thank you to all our storytellers. But uh, again, clap for Molly here. I'm terrified, guys. I am here as the parent of a rebel, and her name is Maggie also. Um, and I was the wrong parent. Uh, she was my oldest child, and I was the wrong parent for a very rebellious child, having been a very compliant child myself, like a number of you. is like, what the hell is she doing? She did everything you could imagine, I think, as high school students. I'm sure most of you were pretty good students, but managed to you know, build in a few hijinks. Well, she was skipping school regularly. We're talking robocalls every day from her high school. Um, and it got to the point where she spent, she was, the, re, the punishment was that she'd be grounded. And at one point she, in her life, she finally said to me, you know, you, I'm grounded so much, I have no life. And it was like, that's all I know how to do here, hon. But there was one occasion where she was grounded as usual, and we were going to a uh, author reading at a bookstore that is now long gone in downtown Madison. It was called Canterbury. I think it's where Aval Books now is. And it was a very... Many years ago, it was a very popular bookstore and had big authors. So she, I went uh, down with my husband and her two younger sisters. She's home in a funk, of course. And there was a big crowd down there for this particular author. And her name is Annie Lamott. I don't know if any of you have ever read her. But big crowd and lots of people before she actually started the author's book milling around inside the bookstore. And people are looking at books. They're big. The staff. You know, are high. And as I'm wandering around, I'm thinking, that looks like Maggie. And I was like, and I kept wandering, and I finally said to Peter, I, I, I think I'm seeing Maggie here somewhere. And I was like, so finally, I think I corralled her two younger sisters and said, Is Maggie here? And they said, Yes. And she'd stowed away in the, we have a Toyota Corolla that had one of those kind of pullback. Um, you know, cargo areas where you could pull the top over yourself. She'd snuck into the back of the car and come down. So, you know, just another way to thumb her nose. <laughs> she also at one point became a gardener, and she and her her biological dad and I were divorced, so she, she we had shared custody. And she at one point started care, getting into raising little plants. Little plants that she told me were basil. (laughs) How stupid can an intelligent parent be? You know, we carried those pot plants back and forth for several (laughs) weeks before I finally went online and said, Maggie, that's marijuana. We finally got rid of it. And she's the kind of kid who would char- was the world's premier capitalist. She would charge her sisters to teach them how to do anything. They were four years younger. Three bucks to learn how to fry an egg. She'd also steal their Halloween candy and resell it. <laughs> and she insisted that my husband tape this because she's a big fan of the moth and she's living in Brooklyn right now. And she's a wonderful... Wonderful Thank you. All right, that's it. We hope you enjoyed those wonderful stories told by wonderful people. Uh, 
as I said, next Story Slam, Saturday, September 17th. That's this coming week, because I'm putting this out on a Monday night. And so you should definitely come out to the Wilmar Center. As always, sponsored by Ale Asylum. Uh, stories start at 7, but doors are at 6. Feel free to bring food and non-alcoholic beverages. Um, it'll be a great time. We've got a lot of awesome things planned for Story Slam this year. We're really excited about it. We hope you're excited about it. Anyway, look forward to the next podcast. The theme then is something I don't remember. <laughs>